Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 101 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes coming out every single Monday. Now, let's stop there quickly and address that. Yes, I said VRP Rocks. Vintage Rock Pod has rebranded. Now, I was made aware by a company in America that I was infringing on their trademark with the name. So, with episode 100 out of the door and literally just days before the third anniversary of this podcast, October 5th, 2020 was when it was launched, I made the decision to avoid all the hassle and the drama and just rename the whole shebang. And to be honest, choosing the name was pretty simple. VRP. Pretty much everybody refers to the podcast as VRP anyway. It's the most prominent part of the logo. It's the first thing you see. So a pretty much obvious choice. And then the rocks part. Well, I think it fits well. It's a nod back to the daily podcast that I used to do as well. Many of you will remember This Day Rocks, and I still hope to bring that back one day somehow. But it also adds kind of the rock back into the name as well. So VRP Rocks. I hope you like it or can at least appreciate the reasons behind me making the change. It is going to take a little while for me especially to get used to saying it, but I think VRP Rocks is a nice clean name and less of a mouthful. So if you see any posts online on social media, please give it a like or a share just to spread the word of the name change, please. Right, that's that dealt with. Let's get on to today's VRP Rocks. Now, today's guest is an incredible guitar player, underrated in my opinion. His work is instantly recognisable. The band he played with for over 40 years has sold more than 60 million records, won a Grammy Award in spectacularly unexpected ways, and continues to enthrall audiences to this day. I am, of course, talking about the former Jethro Tull lead guitarist, Martin Bar. Now, Martin hails from another hotbed of classic rock stars, Birmingham in the Midlands of England. He joined Tull in the late 60s and, along with Ian Anderson, formed a partnership that would carve out an incredible legacy in classic rock. You've got albums like Aqualong, Thick as a Brick, Songs from the Wood, A Passion Play, Benefit, Crest of a Knave and Minstrel in the Gallery. They're all still lauded today. His solo on the title track of Aqualong has been regularly voted high on polls of the greatest guitar solos of all time, featuring a number 20 and 25 in various ones I've seen. Now, in my chat with him, he's very honest about everything that happened in the band, from his disastrous audition, which led to the band not wanting him and preferring someone else who would incidentally go on to become a metal god, the difficulties with making Aqualung, sharing the stage with the likes of Hendrix and Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and more, his thoughts on the Grammy Award win that uh, saw them pip the overwhelming favourites Metallica to the best hard rock metal performance, his thoughts on the 80s albums that went a bit more electronic and when Ian struggled with his voice, and of course... We touch on the split from Tull and how he was left all alone, but he wouldn't let it destroy him. It's a really fascinating chat with an open and honest man, a humble man with so much ability and respect. I know you'll love this one, so please sit back and relax and enjoy this chat with former Jethro Tull guitarist Martin Barr. Now, um, let's go back to, to when you were younger. Obviously, you were in bands and things when you were younger, but let's start with your audition then for Jethro Tull. I read that uh, you said it didn't go too well. You were very nervous at the time. So so what's your memories? What's your recollections of that uh, first audition? Uh, it, it was a complex run-up to it because uh, me and Ian were the two guys, the only two guys in England playing flute in the Roland Kirk style. So we sort of knew of each other through the grapevine, and but had never heard each other and never met. 
So this was sort of going on, and you'd hear, oh, I went to see that guy who plays flute like you, and he was probably getting the same, his his direction. Um, and, and finally, we played in Plymouth, which is where I live, near Plymouth, uh, the Van Dyke Club. It was the opening night of the Van Dyke Club, which is a, an amazing place um, that they had pretty well every band uh, from the UK, uh, Cream, John Mayo, wow. The Who, Pink Floyd. It, it, it was like the marquee, but it was here in Plymouth. So it was, uh, this is the opening night, and it was Jethro Tull headline and Gethsemane, my band, supporting. So he was the big meeting we have been waiting for for all these months. Uh, and we got on great, and we talked about the flute. We both played, and, and obviously very similar style. Um, so I was playing flute and guitar, and, and my band was a, a blues band. So a few months later, Mick, quits Jethro Tull, they're looking for a guitar player. They're trying to think who they know. They remember me, but they can't remember my name or the band I was playing in. So um, in the end, Terry Ellis, the manager of from Chrysalis Records, found me, and he found me on the very – we were quitting because we, we just given up. We've just making, been making no money for three years, and we finally – going to call it a day. The very last gig, we were in London, and he found me, gave me his card, said, cool. And I knew what it was because I'd seen the advert in the Melody Maker. I was too scared to apply. Um, I didn't have the confidence. So there was the car, called me in the morning, go and audition for the guys. I turned up in Soho in this basement room, um, and, and the whole room is lined with guitar players all the way around the wall with Clive and Glenn in the middle playing, jamming to each one, want to come up, jam. When Ian had had enough, he'd tap Clive on the shoulder and they'd stop and go, thank you, next. So it was this like... No pressure waste. at all, yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. It was hideous. So, I, I mean, I, I didn't fall apart, but I was rubbish. I was so bad uh, playing guitar. I said, shall I play a bit of flute? <laughs> I don't know why I said it. So, so I had a, a, a played some piece that I knew on flute, and that was really good. But, uh, that was no use. So, okay, they, they had a short list of me, Tony Iommi, oh, wow. I think Mick Taylor. They went for Tony. Tony didn't particularly um, meld with the music, didn't suit him. He wasn't comfortable and and, um, and at the same time I'd, I just I'd call Ian and I'd say look uh, it was dreadful I, I played really badly what's going on because you know if there's another chance I'd, I'd jump at it there was um, we had um, a rehearsal in uh, Angel Islington uh, in a pub all day I learned a bit of their music they learned a bit of mine and uh there we go. And the chemistry was there and it all worked out fantastically. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I just, something in me, that, that I knew that that was the gig, my gig. And I don't know why, because I was a very shy and and uh, not, not very confident musician, but I just knew it was meant to be. Meant to be, indeed. Fantastic Spooky. stuff. Indeed, yeah. Mm. Um, in terms of, of Ian, then, obviously he comes across his persona as of a, I don't know, a crazy English gent or something. Um, what was he like in those early days? Um, 
sort of larger than life, um, you know, amazing personality, uh, and, and Scottish. He, he'll pick you up on that one, Scottish. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I, I was. I think I was a little bit in awe of him, so it took me a while to settle in. But um, I don't think the band believed I was the right guy for the job. We, we did a few gigs, and people didn't like me because that they knew Mick, they knew Jethro Tull as a blues band, and we weren't playing the blues. We were playing the music from Stand Up. And, and they they didn't necessarily like it at all when they they wondered where Mick was and why the guitar player wasn't a blues guitar player. Um, and then finally we did a gig in <clears throat> Manchester Uni and uh, and we went down great. And, and me and Ian were backstage and we were like, I was so relieved, obviously, but in a, nicely, so was he, because he, he, he had made this decision. Yeah. And he'd really put his neck on the line, and and finally it, it was accepted. And um, the next week we we're in Europe with Hendrix. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, so we were supporting Hendrix for a, a, a few weeks, uh, and then America uh, recording stand up America. Crazy, yeah, crazy. Stuff. Absolutely. Just 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 mentioning Jimi Hendrix there. I mean, what was it like being around him? Because obviously he was a, a huge personality at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was petrified. Um, the first year in Tull, I played with Jeff Beck, Hendrix, Mike Bloomfield, uh, Frank Zappa. Wow. I, the list goes on. Like every great guitar player in the world that, that were all my heroes, I was having to play on stage before they came on, uh, or and Led Zeppelin. Um so I was terrified, but the first one was Hendrix. But, you know, he was the nicest guy on the planet. And um, he, he chatted to me. He, he knew the situation. He, he was just lovely. I mean, he, he was the perfect person to meet uh, in, in that sort of league of amazing guitar players. Uh, so it, it was a tonic, and, and it sort of set me up to deal with other people because it's sort of very intimidating um, sort of being thrust into the, you know, division one. And and I, I was sort of a non-league player. So I was, I, I just really was in at the deep end. Well, you say non-league, but you very quickly rose to division one because stand up the album itself went to number one in the UK. And you talked about um, you're quite shy and, and lacking in confidence, but with the change of direction from the, the previous record and the, the previous sound of the band and, and having this number one album, I mean, that must have really affected your confidence and, and helped you grow and helped the band grow as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, it, it was amazing. And, I think we were in New York when we got the first pressing of Stand Up and we were all in a hotel room and we listened to it. And I mean, we were really proud of what we had done and it and it hadn't been um, released. And then, of course, it was. People loved it. It, it was it was just a dream ticket, you know. And um, as you say, it, it built all of our confidence. Ian as a songwriter, um, the band and and definitely me uh, as a, a guitarist as well. So it, it, it was the best thing that could have happened. Yeah, 
And then following that benefit, another big album. But um, the the big like an inroads and the one that really changed probably your lives as well, the worldwide smash hit Aqualong. It's such a recognisable album, the artwork. I mean, the title track itself, and we'll touch on that title track first. I mean, the, the riff itself, where did, where did the riff come from? Well, well, in the early days, Ian pretty well wrote everything. Um, you know, the the chords he wrote on guitar, yeah. so chords and and the the main riffs were, were all his. Um, so the, the song and the riff were joined at the hip, and then in, in latter days it, it it developed where we're all inputting. Um, yeah, so I mean he, he had uh, incredible songwriting skills, and uh, I think stand up was was big. So we when we did benefit, we were in a really positive, confident mood, and really enjoyed making that album. And then Aqualung, I think we sort of stalled a bit because we toured for a few years. We, we, we were, I mean, maybe a bit too confident, a bit too cocky, uh, and it, it didn't have the standard. It didn't have the buzz that the other two albums had. We struggled to make it sound good. Um, so, so we didn't really believe instantly it was going to be a the, the monster hit that it was, um, mainly because the, the studio, it, it, it was really hard work. Um, so we didn't know what we had, but, I mean, we worked hard at it. We worked hard at everything. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there, think- sorry, that you, you're saying – it was a struggle. Was that in terms of the, the songs itself, or was it the sound of the songs, or the, the sound of the production? I mean, what, what was it that was the main struggle? I think the the um, the standard of playing, you know, just okay. just playing as a banding and getting good takes. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I don't know why it happened. It was just that little blip in time, and and I think you know m- maybe we were just too sure of ourselves and didn't really. Um, go back to zero. You know, every album you start at zero, page one, and you build it. You don't go in thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. I know exactly what I'm going to do because you don't. You, you don't want to be like that. Um, the studio fell apart every other day. Um, it, it was just a, a, a sort of perfect storm of things going wrong. But essentially, the, the, the big factor we, we struggled to get good performances, and um, you know, without that, the backing track sounded sounding strong <clears throat> and tight. That it it wasn't going to happen. So it, it, we had to work hard at getting it right. And you certainly did get it right. And then another thing on the Aqualong song itself is the solo. We have to touch on that. It's it's been acclaimed mm-hmm. the world over, regularly voted as one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. I mean, what do you remember of the composition of, of that solo? Then is that something that you worked on and and kind of built up, or was it something that just came off the cuff and that one sounds great? Well, let's go with that. Um, well, well, I. I, I wrote the arrangement for it. So, I mean, the chords are based on on, on the song, the verse of the song, but but I sort of put it together as an arrangement and we recorded the, the solo backing with the song, obviously. And then um, then I went in to do the, the I, I didn't, had I had no ideas at all. I think I had the sort of beginning, you know, the half time, I sort of worked that out. And then it was just like, you know, heads down, see what happens that's the way it was in the studio all the time and um uh so i go in 
start playing the solo and, and that's when Jimmy Pake, Led Zeppelin were in the basement and we hadn't seen them for a month, but, but they were buried in their album and we were in ours. And, and he finally had a um, half an hour off and he came to say hi and he was waving at me from the control room and, and I, I couldn't stop playing. You know, I was in the middle of the solo um, and it was going okay. So I, I had to, and he, he put me off. I didn't want him to put me off. So I just turned around. He, uh, I turned my back on him. Sorry about that. Um, but that was the take. That, that, that was, you know, one take and that was it. And it's sort of warts and all and... I think recording in those days, it, it was naive, but it, it just had a buzz because it was one take you know, you, you, off the wall. You just didn't know what was going to happen. And occasionally, I mean, it probably unless something went really, really wrong, you, you, you would just do it and that would be it. Wow. And did Jimmy make any comments about the, the solo at the time? I think he left. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. He probably didn't. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, we were friends. You know, it wasn't. Uh, I, I don't think I, I ever had that sort of mutual admiration thing. Uh, until we're never like that. Until we never ever told each other, "You did a good job." Right. I like what you did on that. It, it just wasn't in our in our ethic. It, it, um, it wasn't wasn't for a, a bad reason. It's just we we took it for granted. We're going to do the best we could. We worked ridiculously hard to to make it the best, and uh, and you, that was it. it. Was it was a done deal? Um, so yeah, we, we we never patted ourselves on the back. Wow. And then obviously you're saying it was a struggle to make and, and things like that. So what was your response to, to the way it was received then and, and the fact that it went so big? Yeah, well, it was slow. You know, it was a sort of a slow burn. We, we, we went back to America and um, and played most of it. You know, every album we did, we, we'd, we'd start touring and play the whole album. Um and then according to how people liked it, you know, you'd lose a song or here and there. Some albums right down the line, you'd lose most of the album. But, you know, you don't know how they're going to sound live. And and some things work, some things are better, some things aren't quite as good, but you make them work. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it just clicked. Uh, and, and, and that's why I did the... Um, I did 50 years anniversary tour of Aqualung with Clive Bunker and, and we play it from beginning to end and, and it's still great. Yeah. And every track is a great live track. Uh, why? How? I don't know. You know n- n- nobody, if everybody knew why and how, where and when, life would be boring. <laughs> it would be easy, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. It, it, just, it just clicked with the audience. And uh, and then I mean obviously we took it around the world. We took it UK, Europe, <clears throat> uh, Japan, South America. But we just started touring everywhere because we loved working. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And then moving on to, to thick as a brick. I mean, one long continuous piece of music. Apparently, Ian's response to the fact that Aqualung was labelled as a concept album. What was your what was your thoughts? Or what was the band's kind of? Um, reaction to this when this was first raised the idea of having a one song continuous record kind of thing 
Well, it, it didn't actually make any difference. Okay. Uh, the, the, the thing about Thick as a Brick, it, it's two reels of 24-track. Yep. And so that, that's special because, I mean, you, you can take an album and you can segue music. There's a way of working it and... Uh, and you can make a concept album. I don't even know what the word means, but but you can certainly have a continuous uh, album of material, and and you just make the segues work, and you can, you know, jigsaw music. It's uh, not easy, but it's doable. So the difference is, we we had one master reel in um, Morgan Studio. We started at the beginning. We'd record a piece, go home, come back in, and then we'd record the next bit. So as we did it, you know, we, we made the segues, you know, we, we made it all join and dovetail together. So, uh, but it, but the nice thing about it was that we never went back. You know, we went, we got to the end of the reel, and that was side one, done. <laughs> so then we started side two. Uh, it, it was great. We rehearsed it. Uh, over, over a month in uh, in we had we had the Stone Studio in Bermondsey, sort of a basement yeah. uh, room, and and we rehearsed it over and over and over again. So we sort of knew what we were going to do when we got in the studio. We we had an idea of the music, and, and all we had to do was arrange it and fit it together. Fantastic, and again, that was that was the number one, a big hit in America, and things like that. And uh, performing it live, though, you meant you mentioned uh, Aqualung being live, and and how you you perform records, and some songs drop off. But I read that you said that performing um, "Thick as a Brick" to start with was a bit of a terrible experience to start with because of the time changes and and the comedy sketches that went on on stage around it, and things like that as well. Yeah, I mean, musically, it, it was a challenge to play it from beginning yeah. to end without without making mistakes and. We probably did get from beginning to end uh, uh, perfectly, but passion play was worse because yeah. that, that that was a really difficult music, and I don't think I ever we, we did that in one go, and and I never got that right. I mean, I don't mean falling apart, but there's always a, like a glitch. Um, it, it it was really difficult to play, but um, no, it, it it was a challenge, and it. We rose up to it, you know. Every album we did was a little bit harder, took a little bit more work, was a bit more musical, uh, demanded more of, of us in every way, and uh, that's what kept us thriving. You know, we, we thrived on the challenge, on the work um, load. That's what we did, and, the, and we loved it. Yeah, and the music just kept coming. I mean, the, the hits kept coming as well. I mean, the albums you mentioned, Passion Play and A War Child and Minstrel in the Gallery and Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die. I mean, there were so many great albums in the 70s, Songs from the Wood and Heavy Horses, loads. But uh, the next one I want to touch on, if you don't mind, is 1984. I mean, Under Wraps, it was very much an album of its time, wasn't it? Electronica, kind of synthesizer sounds. There was no no real drummer involved in this as well. But at the same time, uh, I've, I've read that you've said this is one of your favourite records too. So so what is it that, that you enjoy so much about? I, I think they're just great songs. And and, and Peter Vitesi was involved and, and he's an amazing musician. And, and he just taught me a lot about music, about chords. He, he was a great person to work with. And uh, sort of, I moved along in a different direction, in a, in a better direction because of him. Um, 
the, the mistake was using um, electronic drums, and and it was a lot of people were doing it, and essentially it was laziness because rather than spend a day getting a great backing track with a you know a live band, uh, you lay you put the drums into the Lin machine, um, Lin drum machine, and uh, an hour later you had a drum track, and great, perfect, it's in time. You know, there's no mistakes, but it's laziness. Uh, it, it was cool at the time. Uh, retrospectively, it's hideous because the sound is it's just horrible. I, you know, I, it's, uh, and it's a shame because the, the 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 if that album was recorded with a live drummer, it would have been a different beast. But um, but I'm doing a tour. It's called the Brief History. A, brief history of Tull and, and and I've taken all of the catalogue and picked out from 68 pretty well through to Crest of a Nave all the songs that meant a lot to me and, um, and and that's been quite a challenge to put that together but if I say there's three uh, tell a lie yeah there's three tracks from Under Wraps in there and and you can't get enough music in two hours to represent whatever forty-five <laughs> years of time. Yeah. But in my mind, uh, under wraps is important enough to warrant the three tracks, and and they sound great. They sound really, really good, uh, and the audience like it. And the, and they've never heard them for since the album was um, toured. Yeah. And um, lots of people kind of remaster old albums. Has there ever been any thoughts between yourself, Ian, maybe other members of the band to, to go back and actually re-record that with a proper drummer or just add proper drummers on the back of it? Oh, it, 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 yeah, but it'd be like um, <clears throat> listening to the solo on Aqualung and, and where I there's a note that's not quite in tune. <laughs> go back and redo it? No. You know, it, 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 it is what it was, and it was what it was. But it's that little sort of uh, brief moment in time, and that's what we were doing. So all bands were using electronic drum sequences. Um, uh, it's a sort of historic moment with a small H. Um, uh, it should be left alone. You know, it, it, to, to re-record it, it probably wouldn't sound as good. Uh, it's important that it's um, a moment in time and, and should always be that. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Crest of a Nave as well. We'll touch on that. Obviously, famous for the for the Grammy Award that the, the your band won from from that record. But first, let's touch on on Ian because he had throat issues, didn't he, before that in the the preceding years. So he had to change his singing style for that record. I mean, again, what what did you make of of the, the writing process and the, the songs and recording having to slightly tweak the way it was for for his new singing style? Um, I don't know. I, I guess in the latter days, I took Ian's songwriting more for granted it, it, it was written in stone that we'd um plan to do an album that would all turn up on day one and and there they were yeah. the songs uh i mean and ian involved me and s some of the others peter he involved david palmer uh eddie jobson in different versions of the band he, he would bring them into the rising fold if you like and encourage input from everybody. So he, he encouraged me, and, and I didn't write. So, um, you know, at first it would be 
you know, a few seconds, little idea, and then a little segment, and then, you know, and then a song. You know, I wrote two songs, I think, <laughs> ever. Uh, uh, but but it, it kick-started me into my own writing, and that's me. It's, it's a separate uh, musical direction, but in, but it crosses over, obviously. You know, it's, it's influenced in both ways. Um Yes, so it, it always the music started evolving because of the people in the band. So when Dave Pegg was in the band, he brought mandolins, the Fairport folk influence, and we embraced that and learnt from it, wrote around it, and and there was a new album. You know, maybe um, uh, kind of you know songs from the wood, heavy horses. I've got to think which one Dave was involved in, but it, it changed the direction, sort of knocked us a little bit off track in a good way. And then David Palmer brought classical music into it. Um, Peter, just virtuoso playing. Uh, and Eddie Jobson, the same, really. I mean, the things that Eddie came up with, uh, I had to play them. I'm like, <laughs> I had to learn how to play these crazy things. But, you know, the, you either do it or you get left behind, and uh, I don't want to get left behind. It, it was great. It it really kept us thriving, as I said before. Uh, you, you're just working really, really hard to keep pushing ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And what did you make of the, the whole Grammy Awards thing? Because obviously everyone had Metallica down as, as the band that were going to win, and it really was <clears> a, a huge shock, wasn't it, when Jethro Tull won, because you guys weren't even at the awards itself. No, well, the record company didn't think we'd get it, and and they said that we stood no chance, <laughs> and they they said don't go. I mean, I really wanted to go, even as a loser, I wanted to be there. Um, so I have to say it was their mistake and and they, their lack of um, confidence in in the band. But uh, yeah, what a shame because at the biggest moment possibly ever. Uh, in my career and maybe Ian's and the others uh, it was lost forever and it didn't come across well that we weren't there it just looked really bad um, but you know despite that uh, it, it's, uh, I'm proud of it uh, and, and it's a big big deal it's a big deal for me because essentially it was me Ian and Dave Pegg that wrote arranged and recorded that album so I, I feel a big, big part of it. And yeah, I dare I say I deserve it. <laughs> Absolutely you do. Yeah. I better not say that. But I, I'm, 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 I don't have a problem with it. Because to me, it, represent, it doesn't just represent one album. It represents years and years of, of a band putting something into the system. And I think that year, whoever it was, recognised that we, we needed a little bit of a a nod and uh, and it was a good album to, to choose yeah absolutely and you mentioned the a recognition and things like that and uh, just a quick question on, on the whole rock and roll hall of fame i know this comes around all the time and people asking yeah, why yeah, yeah. tull are not in i mean what's your opinion on that what, what's your take on on why you're not there and is it something you'd welcome if you, if you finally did get the nod um the problem is there isn't a jethro tull so um you know, if, if if they ever did want us in there, I don't know who who would be there. Um, me, Ian, and Clive, and maybe Mick, uh, or Mick, Ian, and Clive, or 
Um, there's so many versions of Jethro Tull. I don't know what, which one would deserve the accolade. Um, so, it's a, or you have everybody like thirty musicians. <laughs> it would be chaos. I, I don't know, and and I, I can't say it isn't important because it is. I've been there. I've met the people. They're lovely. Um, they're really, you know, really um, friendly and 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 very, you know, actively supportive of us, of my band. I, you know, I've been there twice with my band to meet them. Uh, I, th- I think the Jethro Tull thing, it's gone. I, I, for some reason, I think our, our, our moment has, has now departed. But um, uh, I, I'd, I'd, for me, I, I would love it if, if there was like a little department for um, guitar players who have been a little bit forgotten. Yeah. It'd be a wonderful thing, and um, uh, everybody wants a pat on the back, just a reassurance to say, "Yeah, you know, you, you, you've, you're not perfect, you're not the best, you're not great, but there's something you've done that's worthy of acknowledgement of of some recognition." So, so we, we all like that. We're just human beings. Yeah, we are absolutely. And we're just talking about toll, and there's not a toll, but a question that a lot of my listeners have asked me to ask you, and and Ken Hoggins, Mitchell Riley, um, Thomas Spencer, as well. Uh, just three of the ones I can see there, uh, all asking about the the split between you and Ian. Was it amicable at the mm. time? It, it, it was a <clears throat> it was a very um, strange event. Um, I, I guess somebody. We'll write about it eventually. Uh, it, it, it was it's something that I'd, I needed to get over and move on from. I was, it's either going to destroy me, um, and I wouldn't let it because I'm whatever qualities I have, I'm really obstinate, stubborn, single-minded, determined. Whatever I am, or whatever I'm not as a musician, and I let other people say that <clears throat> I, I will never give up. I, I will never be you know, go by the wayside. I, I, I just want to play music. I love my guitars. I love playing. I love the music of Tell. Um, so it, it, it's a shame. You know, I, I just think of all the, you know, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant and um, Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart. Oh, uh, just, that, you know, the, the connections, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I'm not saying that, that we're of that in that league, but me and Ian, had a connection yeah. musically, much more than music, uh, and and it's gone forever, that, and that's sad. That's really sad. But uh, I've got my own band that they're amazing. I've got, I've got the best musicians I've ever worked with, and and I and I do all the arrangements. Um, it's my band. I'm a band leader, <laughs> and, and I love it. I hate to say it, I love it. Because I, you know, I, I love work. Um, I'm a workaholic, and, and I'm a musicholic, <laughs> musicholic. <laughs> uh, so it, it keeps me really happy. It keeps me alive, and um, I guess that 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 was the upside to it. I, I was out on my own. I had no support from anybody, record company, management. That nobody gave me any support. So I had to start. Um, from zero, like we we're saying about albums, absolute zero. I had to find people who would get me work, people who would um, release CDs. Uh, it, 
it and and it didn't come easily. I, I was with everybody else in the world. I, I was just, you know, I, I might get my foot in the door because I had a track record. Uh, but after that, you, you're on your own. You know, you, you've got to sell what you've got. What have you got? I don't know. <laughs> you know, do you have any faith in me? Um, so it's been a, a long journey to get where I am, but I'm proud of it. Yeah. And the, and and I wouldn't change that for the world. And I wouldn't um, change my band. Uh, I'm I'm so uh, loyal, and it, it's such a strong uh, collection of people. Um, and we've worked so so hard to get where we are, wherever that is. Um, and and it's has a good degree of success. And and that's it's mine. Yes. And 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 no will take that away from me, that's I it. hope. It's your name that's in bold, it's your name that's in lights, and you're proud of where you've come from. But like you said there, just touching back, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, you said you didn't want to let it destroy you. So obviously this was something that you didn't want to happen. It wasn't your choice. So what was the what was the conversation? What happened to, to, to finally cause the, the, the split then? Um, it, this is a conversation you would have to have with Ian because essentially Ian talked and, and I listened. Okay. So uh, you draw your own conclusions. But it, it's it's an area, it, it makes me sad. I don't want to be sad. No. no. Uh, I'm, I'm positive and looking forward to touring and making more records. And uh, it, I always say to people, it's the worst business decision that was ever made in the history of Jethro at all because uh, you look around and you see people doing these huge... You know, it's not just about the money, but the the attention they get. That the brand is now so diluted as as it's it's, it's a real shame. Yeah, and and I feel that the that the way it's been diluted. Uh, it has a, a, an impact on us all, I'm sure. Yeah. And I was going to ask as well, because obviously at the time there was the Martin Barr band, I think Ian Anderson was Ian Anderson's band, and then he came back with Ian Anderson as Jethro Tull. And then I think a couple of years ago he came back as Jethro Tull. So Brendan Nahal was saying, how, what were your thoughts on Ian carrying on Jethro Tull, the actual name, now without you? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the, um, I am Jethro Tull's guitar player. I was, uh, I am now, and I always will be. Um, the same as Ian will always be the singer flute player of Jethro Tull. So no tribute band, no band I have will ever be Jethro Tull. It can't be. In my mind, that there isn't a Jethro Tull, that there's Ian's band, my band. We play the music of Jethro Tull, and we have, you know, one person each. That's from the the that core important Jethro Tull era. Uh, it, it's it's a really difficult area, and um, people have to make up their own mind. And you know, there's room for everybody. It's a it's a music. It's a big world. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you're touring and you're receiving brilliant praise and the crowds are still turning up and everything like that. You're going down a storm absolutely everywhere. You look on social media and anyone that's seen you live spewing praise for you. So that's always fantastic to see. But just moving slightly off topic then, just from that, um, uh, the likes of uh, Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Joe Bonamassa, they all cite you as being a big influence on them. And then you've got Mark Knopfler describing your playing as magical. I mean, as, as someone who said that he's quite shy and confident 
confidence is, is not a big thing for you and, and things like that. How does it feel yes. when you hear things like that, when you've got legends oh, like I that? Love it. I love it. I just don't talk about it. <laughs> I'm pretending to be modest. Uh, no, I love it. Uh, the, 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 my two favourite things, one's serious and one's not. Um, Sid Vicious was on radio 10, 15, I can't even think, 15 years ago maybe. And, and I think the, the, the Sex Pistols and Jethro Tull with me were doing anniversary tours. And the, the guy mentioned it to Sid Vicious. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, Jethro Tull, yeah. I really like the guitar player. I was like, yes, yes. Sid Vicious likes me. That was the best thing on the planet. Steve, I forget it. Sid Vicious, yes. Uh, but so it was great. And, and the other really nice thing that happened to me was um, G- Gary Moore, who I knew uh, always you know, over the years. And, and we're just friends too. We'd meet up, have a drink, talk about anything, but never on a musical level. And it, but he'd come to our gigs. And I didn't question why, or you know, he's just being friends. So, so he passed away. And John Noyce, who played, was playing with me and played with Gary a lot. We were talking about Gary, and uh, and he said, "Do you know that um, he told me that that I was one of his favourite guitar players?" And that, I mean, my jaw hit the floor. He would never have said it, but that, I mean, that's just. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it was wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's in, it, it doesn't affect, I, I, I still work as hard as I can to play. I'm never as good as I want to be. I never will be. And uh, f- for every one of those, I listen to a live recording and I go, oh, <laughs> I, I, I hear things I play and I just go, no, 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 do that again. They're not good enough. It's, there's, um, you know, I drive myself w- w- way beyond any of that. Oh, brilliant stuff. Now, obviously, you've mentioned it a couple of times that you're touring, you're going back out across America, you've got loads of shows. I think it's like 26 shows you're going to be playing across, what, a 35-day span. <laughs> you've, you've got an awful lot of, of shows in a short amount of time. It's the a Brief History of Toll Tour. Um, so for anyone who's in America listening to this right now, I mean, what can they expect from the tour? I know you've, you've spoke about it briefly, but what can people expect from it and, and, and what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Um, well, I think the set list is now on the internet because <laughs> I was talking to, in my mind, it's like a big surprise because after after the first show, it, it's not a big surprise. But it, it's a lot of quirky things. I play flute, uh, Roland Kirk instrumental. Um, uh, I, I, we, we, we play Saucity. That's a really rare track acoustically. Um, under wraps electric, under wraps acoustic from uh, from the album. Great, just two great versions of the same song. Um, it, it, it's a a real melting pot of of all the things I love about Jethro Tull, and, and it's a gamble. You know, I like it. Do you like it? Yes, essentially they do. Uh, but you know, you, uh, I never play safe. So there's a lot of the big hits that just aren't there, and they don't need to be, because it's Jethro Tull catalog. It's it's a very deep catalog. It's long, uh, but it also has depth. You know, every album has tracks, hidden tracks, if you want to put it that way. But they're just things that 
don't get a lot of airplay or a lot of um, chat about them, but they're just great songs and, and they sort of fell under the radar and, and I want to bring them back. Fantastic. So fans have told that uh, love the back catalogue that want to hear something a bit different than just the big hits and should definitely get along to see you. Yeah, uh, it, it's two hours of, of great music and uh, we, we love doing it. And you just, uh, you never know. Uh, I've, I've, I did a 50th anniversary tour and then I did a, an Aqualung um, celebration tour with Clive Bunker and now it's this one. And, and in my mind, this is the one that wraps it all up. It's, it's the, the ultimate of, of everything I love and think about Toll's music and my part in it. This is, represents everything I've done. And then next time around, I might just play my music. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. And then obviously after that, you're going to, to South America as well because of the, the 50th anniversary, the Aqualong tour. It's been rescheduled a few times. But again, there's a, there's a few dates across all the different countries, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, that sort of thing, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's the last catch-up from uh, COVID. <laughs> and, and, and amazingly, I can only think of maybe two, possibly three gigs that we lost wow. in that whole two-year period. We've done every show that we were scheduled to do postponed, but I'm, I'm so pleased we have. Excellent. Um, it's been difficult to, to, to get it all back on, on, on track, but South America will be the last catch up and then <laughs> start again. <laughs> and what is start again? Because obviously this takes us to the end of this year. What, what, what's 2024 hold for Martin Barr? Um, what we've got two is lined up. Um, but the music, uh, it's, a, it's a question mark at the moment. I mean, that, that there's that I'm sport for choice because <clears throat> there's so much toll music um, still not played for a, a long time as in the in the vault, and and my music, uh, it's a different beast. But uh, I, I like playing my music as well, uh, and I don't want it to fall fall by the wayside. So I need to bring it back in, and I might. It might be a small amount, might be a lot. I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. And I'm, I need to do it. I've, I've got music I've written over the last three years, a huge amount. So I do a new CD, new album, whatever you call it these days, uh, next year, for next year. Brilliant. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, I, there's, I'm, I'm never short of ideas, but it's just <laughs> picking the right one. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you all this time, Martin. Uh, I wish you the best of luck for the for the tour that you've got for the end of this year, and I look forward to hearing what's going to happen with with new music for 2024. Hopefully, yeah. Well, uh, me too. I'm excited. There you go, the brilliant Martin Barr there. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. He was such a gent to talk with. Now, I've interviewed Ian Anderson before on the podcast. If you've not heard it yet, uh, you can check it out on episode 50. We mainly focused on his new album that he was releasing at the time because that's what he wanted to stick to. But if you're interested, you can scroll back to episode 50 and give that one a listen with Ian Anderson. Just go back to episode 50 of VRP Rocks to find it. Anyway, that's it for me this week and the VRP Rocks show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to VRP 
RP Rocks on your podcast app so that you get every single episode. Loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It really does make a big difference. Check out the VRP Rocks YouTube channel as well and give us a like, follow or subscribe on the social media channels too. Just search for VRP Rocks. And a big thanks to everyone who interacts each and every week on all of those. Anyway, until next week then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.